With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello everybody, it's your hype machine wizard, Holden McNeely. This is going to be the best podcast that's ever been made. We're going to have a witch in it. We're going to have kids in it. We're going to throw, this podcast is going to impregnate your wife. This podcast that you're listening to right now is going to be the greatest thing that's ever happened to podcasts. That's right. I'm saying it right now. I'm Mr. Molyneux and I'm going to hype this thing up until it explodes. Jake? First of all, Holden, you are not doing the Molyneux hype well at all. Let me school you. Let me school <laughs> okay, you, you on how you hype a podcast Bruce, Peter Molyneux style. All right? Here we go. Here we go. Imagine a podcast that not only lived in your ear, but actually built a tiny house. And within the house, there were several <laughs> smaller podcasts, each one dynamically and uh, AI integrated into your exact needs so that oh. no two tiny podcast houses are the same. Oh, then that imagine nice. that when you download the podcasts from the tiny podcasts, those podcasts also are run by tiny hosts who are making their own podcasts. <laughs> now then, what if you could take the podcast out of your ear, put it in a little jar, mix it with seltzer water, and drink it and it gets you fucked up? <laughs> These are the questions that nobody else is asking. What are the limits of podcasts? Can you drink a podcast? That's what this podcast is going to reveal. Also, I'm, please give I'll me money. I'll buy it yesterday for $600. Good, good, good. Uh, I've just received word none of that's in the podcast. Oh, well, what can you do? But my next podcast is going to be even better. You know, sometimes you put out, I don't know, an episode on a comic book, let's say, called Fables. Mm. And then everybody goes, hey, what about the other episode you should have done called Fable? And uh, you're right. And what is that? Is that some, uh, It's is this the some... elephant in the room you're addressing, Holden. <laughs> yes, we already did an episode on the comic series Fables. And everyone yelled at us. It's a great comic series. But also, com- this is a great video game. And it's kind of... It's. I feel like it's also perfect for not to say a word uh, that kind of is eye rolly, but it's like kind of perfect for our demographic specifically. <laughs> I feel like the generally, and and if you're listening to this and you weren't around during Fable, um, you're also in the demographic. Don't worry. But I'm also gonna say I feel like a lot of people who like this show age range wise, like were stri- were super into Fable when the Fable hype was real. I was more of a PlayStation kid. I remember Fable, though, being one of those games that made me, like, consider getting an Xbox. 
It also was uh, around the time. I don't know. It just kind of legitimized the Xbox in a huge way. It like like it was like that and like Halo were like a couple of the only IPs specifically for Xbox that really blew it into the you know I don't know made it more legitimate in the mainstream. Um, and it definitely had that mystique to it because I never did play it of like this game's like more than a game or mm-hmm. this game like works with you in this way that hasn't happened ever before, you know? I mean, even the good and evil system, we recently did KOTOR and, uh, you know, you, you, you think of that as being one of the earlier adopters, but was Fable not really the, like, the first big game that did it? I don't know about first. There's always been like morality kind of karma systems, even in stuff like D&D or something. But playing around with that and having it kind of work dynamically. Having as, your actions affect yeah. your like physical form and, and all that, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to the point where like, on, OK, I'm, I'm going to admit it. I also didn't grow up with this game series. This was part of the whole Peter Molyneux sideshow that happened throughout the 2000s right. in my head. Uh, as someone who just read a lot of IGN and read a lot of Kotaku, you know, the 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 highs and lows of this one bald-headed fuck's, like, weird career uh, was always making headlines. But for the people who did play Fable would speak about it in reverent tones. I remember back at Dorkly, uh, one of my editors uh, was like, oh, well, you know, Fable 3. And I was like, what about Fable 3? And he was like, wait, you don't know? And, like, he passionately like retold the entire story of the game uh including the massive uh kind of twist with fable 3 which is you know halfway through the game you just go ahead and beat the evil monarch find out that the reason why he was being evil is that he had this giant uh world like threat that he had to deal with and that's why he was being a dick to his people and that now that you uh toppled him you now have to make all these weird decisions and be kind of a dick yourself if you want to actually save the world the way he was trying to. And so, like, all that, like, made this game sound so much bigger than it actually is. That's, okay, the thing about Fable is, at its core, when you strip away all the cool uh, Peter Molyneux, like, uh, accoutrements and systems and things that, like, make the game richer... Which I know I'm going to say, it sounds like if I said this, if you take away all the things that make the game unique, it's not a unique game. That was a brilliant thought I was trying to share just that. It is a very simple action RPG with a fairly basic uh, combat system. You have uh, melee combat, ranged combat, and a shit ton of magic spells that kind of interact with each other. Uh, But the thing that makes it truly unique is all of these weird little systems and ideas that uh, the team at Bullfrog, I'm sorry, the team at Lionhead... Under the guidance of Peter Molyneux, kept incorporating into these games where, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you can just go ahead and punch every NPC in the game. And eventually you'll get in trouble and people will be scared of you and you'll be known as an evil asshole who punches everyone. But that's just a level of like freedom or novelty that was just in no other real game. Yeah, I have I have like a good quote about it. We'll probably get to eventually that's like buried in my notes. But I definitely think I, I thought it was really interesting someone saying that. You know, really video games in a lot of ways, especially games like these, is a lot of smoke and mirrors to make you feel like you are in this, like, living story, Mm -hmm. right? And this game was a game that definitely shot for that kind of a gameplay experience, where, like, they wanted you to feel like you were just, like, living in this world, even though there were tons of strings attached everywhere, 
but they were trying as hard as they could to not make you see that and just make you think like, wow, this is like a real, I'm like in an interactive fairy tale. Yeah. And uh, just the the very the, just the innate Britishness of all yes. the proceedings that you the know humor. After- I think I think too. You know, uh, this is probably one of the first games that really popped out after all this dark and gritty for years and years and years. Just everything is dark and gritty, and it's a cold world. And usually, it's British actually because we're talking about fantasy for the most part when we talk about uh, these RPGs. But this one seemed to be one of the first ones that was like a little brighter and a little a little more willing to just be fun and funny, you know, and not worry so much about, like, making you scared or making you, like, feel like you're this badass in this cold fantasy world. Tonally, it's kind of all over the place in a way that uh, touches back a lot when we um, focus on, like, a European genre fiction kind of thing, the same way that uh, Fifth Element and Heavy Metal Magazine and Judge Dredd. There's like this satire and this like kind of cheeky humor mixed with a lot of edgelord darkness that kind of like mixes in between. Uh, you know, in Fable, there's uh, at the same time that you're like kicking chickens around and like ste- stealing pies and like there's a stone faced demon door that won't let you through to a bonus area unless you like get fat. And then he talks about how you're a real thick boy. (laughs) Like amongst all that, there's also like, you know, bandits like murdered your family and blinded your sister. And like, uh, Uh you can like kill your best friend for 10,000. You know, there's all this wrought darkness mixed in with the cheeky humor in a way that is uniquely European is uniquely uh, British that uh, definitely you don't quite see as much in Stuff like Bethesda games or uh, what's another like or Bioware game at the time. Yeah. So like it fills this very it's this very unique tone. Uh, It filled this very specific niche that before I think it kind of got displaced once like uh, The Witcher and uh, the later uh, uh, Elder Scrolls games like the you know, people are. It kind of is of the Xbox, Xbox 360 generation and. People keep claiming Fable 4 is on the horizon, and people want it to be good. But well, uh, we'll, we'll we'll get to why. Yeah, it'll never it'll never be the Fable you know, no matter what. And we'll get mm. to why that is because the history of this is really also the history of of really game development at this time. And and this is a very unique scenario in game development. I should say, here's the synopsis. Now that we're well into the episode, uh, because it is kind of. Uh, what I was getting at with the game dev stuff. Fable is an action RPG developed for the original could you, Xbox. Could you rap? Could you rap the synopsis? Yeah, it's an action RPG. Don't you see? Developed for the original Xbox, and you know you gotta be. Hold on, let me try that again. Fable is an action RPG. It was developed for the original XB by <laughs> Big Blue Box Studios, which was was a satellite developer of Lionhead. You know. Woo woo. The game was exceptional for breaking certain stereotypes in the RPG genre, as well as fun gameplay and a good evil protagonist system. Anya. <laughs> All right. That last one was a big fail. The last one was kind of like the false start one. but um, I respect your commitment, though. I really do. Genre is a tough one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Genre stuff. I'm also brutally hungover. I'm in Ed's closet right now in <laughs> Los Angeles. Let me just say that as well. Your acoustics have never been better, Holden. I, I probably is actually because this is technically way better than my home setup, uh, current setup, which is just like in the living room. Uh, like I don't know. It's all been a nightmare, everybody. We're 2021. Nothing's changed. Uh, but either way, uh, uh, it is very funny. Um, 
to be in a different setup here and to be forced to rap by my co-host. But you know what? I respected your volley, and I made it work. Okay? And you at home, if you don't think I made it work, then write me a DM and just say you didn't make it work. (laughs) And nothing else, okay? Because I don't want to hear your critique any more than that. But either way, why all that to say, um, this was a game, this was like a studio within a studio within a studio. This was that old, cool thing that we see time and time again where it's like this little kind of indie outfit working within the big machine and they catch fire with a really cool idea. We saw this with Resident Evil. We saw this, I didn't I think we saw this even with um did we see this with Castlevania? But either way, it was like it's like always this situation where these the small team comes up with like a really interesting idea. Um, and then it and then it kind of blows up like a balloon in this instance. But then also you have Peter Molyneux as its own force, and that is a whole story about hype. And I think he was like really on the ground floor when it came to like OG hype machines. Like he really knew how to like this game. This game was the product of an assload of people, but there was just this one guy that was making it seem so cool to so many people that Microsoft put it out in a big way. There was a lot of support behind it that it never would have gotten. And so it's just this fascinating thing where sometimes like and we'll see the downside of this hype shit in this story by the way but sometimes hype can actually do good for it's, people Molyneux has like there are m- multiple cycles within this man's life there are cycles that he goes through between game development there's cycles he's gone through on a like meta level within his career it's very very bizarre seeing these patterns repeat themselves and how this one guy has kind of like He's either farce gumped it through just like sheer like mindless charisma t- through all this, or he is a fucking criminal mastermind, and I can't figure out which is which. Right, he's like kind of shitty. It's kind of funny, but especially where he's just flat out just saying shits in the game that's like never was talked about being in the game, <laughs> and then the poor devs had to go like, I guess we'll try to put it in the game. It's one thing you know? if he's like, it's one thing. Okay, one of the most famous examples is uh-huh. early in the hype for Fable, which you know we'll get into the full story. We, obviously, the point of the podcast is getting to the full story, but he said like, what if you could plant an acorn? And then it would grow into a tree in real time. And you can revisit the sapling and see it grow. Like, to talk about, like, how in-depth the world is and how, like, custom and how, like, how much control the individual player has. And people, like, latched onto that because the idea is, like, oh, well, if you can plant acorns, what else is, like, alive in the world? Like, if the details are so taken right. care of that I can plant acorns, this must be <laughs> the magic game forever that allowed me to, thing, like... And yet it was a thing that didn't exist, and it was apropos of nothing. Yeah, no, it didn't... Well, it, well, like, it, that's not completely true. There is this morphing environment tech that we'll get into, but, like, this was not really that... This was, like, this extension of that that was completely impossible to actually exist at that time. So, obviously, it didn't show up in the game. Uh, in an interview, the excuse he said was that, like, it would literally take up 15% of the CPU power of the Xbox just to, like, keep real-time track of every t- of trees in your area. Yeah. Um, in your area. And so, like, he then was like, oh, I was dumb. I was so silly. Obviously, that's not, like, oh, silly me. Uh, 
In Fable 2, they make a joke about how there's a legendary acorn that'll grow into a legendary tree in one of the quests as kind of like a wink-wink, we learned our lesson kind of deal. And then he just goes up and just keeps promising weird shit for every subsequent game. And the fact that, like, he's Peter Molyneux. He's a basement coder who did good, started his own studio, made all these wonky kind of simulation and... Uh, non-traditional games for the Amiga of all uh, systems. And there's a funny story behind that that I'm I'm excited to tell in just a second here. But his flagship series, like the thing that he's most known for, is a long-running action-adventure series. The most straightforward thing that like a studio could make for a major console. And that push and pull. So like his heart's yeah. always somewhere else. So he always wants to weird up this... like. He's, like, begging to make a weirder game than what an, an action RPG yeah, actually like, is. Yeah, like a crazier thing. He's just, he's a swing for the fences kind of guy. He's, like, a think tank kind of guy, mm-hmm. you know? Big dreamer type of dude. And uh, But it's very funny how that can actually, like, work in the favor of something that's not quite as good as what, you know, he's describing, you know, or, or quite as, like, wide open as he's describing mm. in this stuff. But uh, you believe it, and you want to believe it, you know what I mean? It's kind of like when my, um, I was in elementary school, my buddy uh, Ben, ben uh, in elementary school, he, he convinced us he had a VR headset at his house. And he, he just convinced us and convinced us and convinced us, and I was so excited to go to his house and try this virtual reality that didn't exist. And I went, and um, of course it wasn't there. And we ended up playing his uh, N64, and uh, he just wanted us to come to his house. Peter Molyneux <laughs> just wants you to come to his house. Holding, he, you he nailed promises it. And you promises and promises perfect and promises. analogy. You, you know what I mean? You go to his house, and, and yeah, it's not there, and you're kind of mad at him, but we enjoyed playing, um, you know... In 64 with them that day. So who who lost in that situation? I don't even know. In this version of the story, Peter, the virtual reality machine is Peter Molyneux's uh, weird fake boy that you can only interact with on the yeah. connect. <laughs> yes, 100%. Everybody, come see my fake boy. It's going to be great. You're going to love my boy. He's not a real boy. Wouldn't you love, you know, boys? This one's not real. I've mastered boy technology. <laughs> So uh, let us start with uh, the beginning, and that is Big Blue Box and Peter Molyneux. For, for Molyneux, for Big Blue Box, I just have, it consisted of two brothers, Dean and Simon Carter. We're going to hear a lot from them throughout this episode. I have a lot of quotes from those two throughout the episode. They really were the the roots of the whole thing. And uh, there was fable artist Ian Lovett. They had left Electronic Arts in 1998. Uh, Carter said, Simon and I had wanted to do our own thing for quite some time, but lacking anything in the way of funds, industry clout, or even a place to work, we were initially based in Peter's house in Guilford. Lion's Head's offer to start something with their help seemed like too good an opportunity to pass up. So uh, back up the truck. Now we really need to just talk about Peter Molyneux as the dude. So he's the one who hooks them up with with a game dev gig and gets the wheels turning for Fable uh, through Lionhead, which is supported by Microsoft. But um, before we get all into that, we have to talk about the man himself and his whole, just his whole backstory. Uh, are we going to talk about the Bean story? Oh, yeah. I get, we can talk about the Bean story. I don't know if I have, is he Bean Dad? Is that what happened? Remember <laughs> Bean Dad? Doesn't feel like a month ago at the time of this recording. It was four days ago. Sparing the fo- sparing the weird Gen X uh, edgy, uh, sarca- edgy jokes, um, yes, Peter Molyneux is gaming's Bean Dad. <laughs> 
So, Molyneux started out in 1982 distributing and selling floppy disks of games for the Atari and Commodore 64. Stop me when the bean story comes up, Jay, because I'm not sure I have this so-called bean story in my notes. So, just let me know when it's bean time, okay? So, yeah, Molyneux is one of these <laughs> legions of uh, home computer basement coders who are, like, you know, sharing games, creating games for uh, popular home computers like the Commodore 64, the, the classic 8-bit system. Supposedly, his first game ever was a text-based business simulator. Yes, yeah, called The Entrepreneur, and he was convinced. He was like... I'm going to put this game out there, and everyone's going to buy it like crazy. This is the greatest. I'm going to be a millionaire. Like, he just so thought that this text-based business simulation game called The Holden, Entrepreneur. Say, say the words text-based business simulator again and try to imagine the person that's like, everyone's going to love this. <laughs> so the game sells like shit. And uh, he realizes he's not a millionaire yet. He apparently sold one copy to his mother. That he was very, uh, very uh, thankful for. Then, oh, this is the beans. Then, I now I know that I have the beans, Jake. Okay. I, I am a, a holder the of the many beans of the story. We got the beans. We, we got, got the, the beans. beans. He then started Taurus Impex Limited. Uh, just r- rolls right off the tongue. And this is a company that exported baked beans to the Middle East. Which mm-hmm. is, I guess, a thing that needs to be done. And uh, this is the weirdest thing ever. So he just happens to be really into video games and like creating his own video games. But he had to settle down and work for, work for a bean company. Yeah, it works for a bean company. And then Commodore International, maker of the Commodore game con, like home computer console, whatever it was, mistook the company for a network software production company called Taurus, T-O-R-U-S, not T-A-U-R-U-S. Taurus, like Ford Taurus was the bean company. Company Taurus, without not like the car, yes, uh, was the communications company. And so, the, in this confusion, they offer Molyneux ten free Amiga systems to help port the software of that company over to that. And with that, he totally was just like faked it till he made it. Literally, in this situation, just like okay, I'll take it. And he designed the balls. The balls did not go like, oh, hey, listen, sorry, I the common, yeah, I and just like. Dead-eyed shark fucking vision was just like, yes, this is Taurus. But also the serendipity of that, like of all the mistakes, it just happened to be video game related. Honestly, it's because they were Amigas. Amigas were like the fucking coolest systems you could buy. They had all these crazy graphics hardware that, like, up until basically 486 uh, machines, like, were unrivaled. People, like, nerds went crazy for Amigas, and just getting 10 of them for free, I probably at the time would have also committed a felony and been like, yeah, I'm definitely, this isn't uh, impersonation and business fraud. So he designs a database system for the Amiga, and this has moderate enough success that he was able to leverage that money into founding Bullfrog Frog Productions in 1987, and he essentially just bullshitted his way into getting to port the game Druid 2 to the Amiga, leading to other gigs. He's now just like, I'm just gonna, and I feel like we were talking about how he would just pull shit out of his ass for the hype machine, and we see it here. He's learning this lesson early. Like, if I just total bullshit my way into, I can just get whatever job I want, just... (laughs) I just fucking figure it out. So he creates the original concept for the first ever God game, actually, which is kind of a huge deal, called Populous. And I think we may have mentioned Populous in an episode previous. It's a very odd game. Um, 
So Populous was a huge hit, and it basically boils down to it is a continent simulator where you are given all these followers. I believe the the individual citizens are called peeps. Mm. And um, the only real interaction you start out with is the ability to just shape the land. So you can like raise the elevation or lower the elevation. Mm -hmm. But the actions of the peeps are pretty much completely independent. Um, As you play through, you get a few more powers. You can like summon earthquakes and volcanoes and do some other fun things. Um, But really, you're just kind of manipulating the terrain. And uh, this is done in a very weird uh, isometric perspective with kind of these land tiles that match up together and as you scroll across the overworld map you get almost just this acre of land at a time visible at once this isn't polygonal this is all done with like sprites and uh the eventual end game is you meet another civilization and if your civilization is weaker than theirs they get wiped out and if your civilization through your subtle guidance ends up stronger than theirs then you win but just the novelty of like kind of idly watching and tending to this population was revolutionary. It was kind of this like very new way of playing a game. And on a system like the Amiga, which prided itself on a very active development community and on having like kind of deeper experiences than what was available on the very crude 8-bit consoles at the time, uh, this was a real big hit. They sold millions of copies of Populous. And that is when EA comes into the picture. We talked about EA briefly just a little while ago, and this is the connection point. In 1995, EA acquires the studio. Molyneux became vice president and consultant, but then leaves in 1997 to found Lionhead Studios. Before that, he put out the strategy video game Dungeon Keeper, which again we've talked about this game being instrumental in another whole different lane of games. And that's one where you are, like, essentially play the bad guy. You're, like, creating the dungeons, and the heroes are invading the dungeon. And the whole thing is you're trying to kill off these invading heroes. And wouldn't you know it, those Carter brothers worked on this game. And that is the the closing of the loop between Peter Molyneux and the Big Blue Box guys. This is when they all get together, form a working relationship. And um, one last funny thing about during this time, apparently Molyneux, as we said, he leaves the company in 1997. Apparently he got hammered with a friend of his and he talked about wanting to possibly resign from EA. This turns into this like drunken decision to write a resignation letter. And then the friend against Molyneux's wishes hits send on the email. (laughs) And then Molyneux has to go in the next day and and kind of pull a... uh, George from Seinfeld and like be like I didn't mean to do that I still want to work here but then that kind of just was the beginning of the end essentially for his job there so he actually saved his job for a little bit longer but it was in the water at that point or the writing was on the wall at that point you know what I mean the legends are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. 
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. So, Bullfrog did a lot of really cool games. They did a lot of very like interesting things. Uh, they did a game called Theme Park, which was this precursor to... Uh, it was kind of like Roller Coaster Tycoon where you build a theme park and you adjust like very subtle things like uh, the concession stand prices and the speed of the rides to kind of maximize profits. They did a theme hospital, which I think was released in America as Sim Hospital. Uh, all these games like kind of have this very hands-off God-level perspective, focus on... Um, very, you know, managing a population of AIs. Uh, and so, again, these are just breakout kind of non-traditional games uh, with Molyneux at the helm, kind of breaking the idea of what interaction can be. And then because he has the gift of gab, he gets, you know, integrated into the corporate system at his pub- at the publisher. He gets bored. He gets unruly. Um, he gets in charge of a too large of a team and he kind of just gets away from him. And yeah, he spins off Bullfrog and starts uh, Lionhead thinking that I'm going to go back to basics. It's going to be like the old populist days. We're going to have a small team. We're going to focus on one game and it's just going to be back like the good old days. And I get to just think about cool ideas and that's going to be my job. And as Lionhead kind of grows because he is such a big name in the industry, he picks up all these smaller uh, Surrey-based studios like uh, Big Blue Box, and all of a sudden, what was supposed to be one game becomes way more games. Yeah, and um, you know, and then while that's going on, you've got the Big Blue Box guys. They they relocate to a small market town in Surrey and start working on a landscape-altering dueling wizard as it was as it was described in my uh, notes. A battle royale type game, like a dueling wizard battle royale type game, called uh, Wish World. Obviously, this is way before what we know of as a battle royale's giant popularity as a genre. So I'm not sure how similar the, the that is to the genre that we know. It was according uh, to Simon, a sort of third person re- real time strategy game that took the magic and world morphing aspects of Magic Carpet. And combine them with elements of one of our favorite games. Oh, this is um, this is a quote from him. Actually, I just realized. Uh, combine them with the elements of one of our favorite games, Julian uh, Gollop's Chaos. It was a very bullfrog game, multiplayer first, magical, technically ambitious. And uh, wouldn't you know, this game is very hard to sell because <laughs> no one knows what the fuck. They're just like, what the fuck? What do you mean? What is this? This is insane. So um, they they just. It's just too bizarre of a concept for for anyone to take it on. And then this other game comes out at the, like while they're pitching their game that's like kind of the same game. Uh, and so they just sort of are like at a standstill. Um, and that's where we get to Project Ego, which will later become known as Fable. Dean said, We talked things over with Peter, who suggested we shift it into more of a single-player character-driven game. This coincided with another concept they were toying with. Uh, uh, Dean said, Based on our love of Ultima games, which I've t- we've talked about Ultima so much in the past, and Jim Henson's The Storyteller, a fairy tale RPG where the world was a non-linear sandbox simulation, that's where they start to land on 
uh, this this overall fable concept. Uh, so it was actually a, a much more ambitious pros, uh, project than Wish World, but because they were able to package it in the right way to to pitch it, they uh, it, it ended up being a lot easier for them to get a publisher for this game, this character driven, sandboxy, you know, fairy tale RPG. It was like people could just kind of hang their hat on that a little bit easier. So that's where they get to the. Uh, the project ego development. Dean said Peter's suggestion was that we focus on one wizard, Merlin, but allow players to make any kind of Merlin they want. We liked some aspects of that idea and decided to push it a little further, making it into a game where players could become any kind of heroic archetype they wanted. Um, and it's around this time that they bring in two initial hires, uh, Martin Bell and Casper uh, Dogard. To God, I'm sure I'm saying all these names wrong. I think I've said Peter Molyneux's name differently every time I've said it. Um, these two people come in and create the engine that could morph detailed characters, giving them wrinkles, tattoos, etc., and even environments that could morph in real time, which is where, which is the seed of how Molyneux got to this concept of like planting acorns, <laughs> right? Because yeah. they had this basic tech that could like morph environments in this way. And then he kind of multiplied it times ten, what it could do, like in, 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 you know, vocalizing it to people. That so there was, but at least there was a basis in what he was trying to promise, because they did have this cool uh, engine they were working with. So while Project Ego is kind of tooling away, um, the the main push of Lionhead Studios was uh, the Black and White series, which is like. The, uh, I don't know, you have to remember it. You're a god again uh, in a polygonal <laughs> world and you uh-huh. control this big monster that's like an animal and you can like uh, make the animal evil or good depending on how you, you know, you can pet the monster with your god hand or you can slap it around and make him mean. And it is this like very interesting exploration of artificial intelligence with uh, actually... Uh, Demi Hassabis, uh, one of the founders of Google DeepMind, who, you know, the the same DeepMind that won the Go championship and, like, did all this crazy AI. Oh, like, okay. It's like the, uh, the smart uh, AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, Molyneux's, like, real heart is still at these, like, very almost non-game games. Like, you know, the technology promises all these great things, but... Either it's outright lies or it's so subtly behind the scenes that, like, you really can't, like, see what's happening. And you're just like, okay, I'm in a valley. Uh, I can, like, throw human, tiny humans, like, ragdolls. And, like, if I wait around, my monster will get, like, gnarlier teeth, I guess. Like, it just wasn't as... uh, It was a huge hit on the hype alone because it promised this unique, never-before-experienced technical achievement. But... The black and white series was just always like kind of just criticized for being just a little bit not enough of a game to mm. be a game. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also uh, at Lionhead the movies, which was supposed to be this kind of Sims create your own movie software where like uh, you run a Hollywood studio and you cast actors and then you can like make little sets and make little films and upload the little films kind of like a very limited machinima uh, system to a website and like that was also kind of like not quite a game. Uh-huh. So when Microsoft came a knock in and was looking at what this legendary, you know, auteur game developer was doing at his auteur game studio, the one thing that really stood out that really was like, ooh, 
our new system could use some of this good stuff was this Legend of Zelda-ass fantasy action RPG. Mm-hmm. And so what became Big Blue, what was once Big Blue Boxes, like little side project with 30 people working on it, with more money coming in and with more interest coming in, uh, became like an 100-man project that like Molyneux took more of a hands-on approach on while still juggling all these other games that like it's basically within a couple of years... Molyneux's idea to be just a simple, easy, like focused game studio fell apart and he was already spinning a million plates. Yeah. And it's so this is how because I'm about to get into how they really wanted to do things differently from the RPGs at the time. And they got to really experiment and play. It's like this little it's this special little formula, this very specific scenario where you've got big money backing, but it's still technically a small studio with this guy having a hands-on approach, letting them shoot, swing for the fences in this way that you don't, normally wouldn't get in this kind of AAA situation. So, so they want to do, they want to stay away from the cliches of RPGs of that era. Dean said, we wanted to popular, uh, we wanted the populace to be ignorant and the world's past to be mysterious and magical. We wanted rumor and reckoning to win out over exhaustive histories learned peculiarly well by even the most ignorant peasants in the land. The game has quests, loot, and ability upgrades, but also served as a social sim, enabling one to buy a home, marry villagers, and of course be either good or evil. These were layers that really made it more complex than what was normally the normal RPG fare. The other difference was in the game's general tone, as it aimed to be, as we said before, a dark fairy tale with Python-esque, Monty Python-esque elements. Black Adder was a big influence on this game. British humor of that nature uh, was so, so important to them. And a lot of this was actually because of the uh, uh, there was there was very little Microsoft blowback on on this kind of thing, which normally I think would have gotten blowback. There was a producer at Microsoft named Rick Martinez who apparently supported the game and personally loved Monty Python and Black Adder. So all this weird humor is, is sneaking into this game. Then there's the whole world based on player actions thing, and I love this quote from Dean because he really lays out like why this is actually even more complex than it seems to be on uh, you know by a at a glance by a player Dean said, a world that transforms due to player actions is expensive. It alters dialogue. It alters basic geometry, navigation, and story flow. To do something like this successfully, you need decent uh, phoneme generation so the dialogue can alter on the fly, referencing things the designers didn't even think of. You also need all shadow generation and lighting to be real-time because lights might not be where the designers thought they were going to be, nor the buildings they were attached to. You need navigation meshes to be 100% dynamic because those broken stairs might be repaired while you're sitting down and drinking a beer. There's a research project, the name of which escapes me, to create an AI that can write a simple, convincing, engaging fairy tale. The results are not good. If we're to get a reactive world to a point where it is worth engaging with, we'll have to either forego spoken dialogue or shift engine tech along a bit and remove baked shadows and lighting. I think we can already achieve some of the latter, but AI storytellers, right now, not so much. So all that to say it wasn't something they could just put into the machine and have it spit out the results i mean everything had to be tailored in this very difficult way to create that kind of feeling of a world that changes around you that you affect uh eurogamer has an amazing kind of retrospective on the uh history of lionhead studios and they talk about how 
um, the spec, they, you know, wanted this to be a early release for the Xbox and that machine actually had a ton of shifting specs on its way to being a final product. So uh, Lionhead had been developing this game on powerful PCs and like kind of late in the game found out that that actually wasn't going to be the resources available to them. And so uh, Microsoft personally sent over extra engineers to help them optimize the game. Another producer who helped was, um, this, is, this is an amazing story, Louise Murray, nay Copley, is credited by more than a few as having played a key role in the launch of Fable. Without her as a producer, people say, Fable would have died a horrible death. Yes, I love this story with this person. This is, this is an actual quote. When Louise came in, she was a bit hardline, uh, one programmer remembers. And as was typical of the industry at the time, nobody really knew how to talk to a woman. Peter had no idea how to speak to her. He would make (laughs) inappropriate jokes in a room full of guys and then realize that he couldn't say that because there was a woman in the room with him. She was very good at dealing with me, Molyneux admits. I'm always constantly saying, hey, look, we've got to add one more feature. We've got to spend more time on balancing this. And she was fantastically good at saying... Hang on a second, Peter. Is that really important? She made what I did and everyone did better. Fable wouldn't be Fable without her. And um, she was a key producer throughout the Fable series and actually got inducted into like the BAFTA Women in Games Hall of Fame in its inaugural year in 2011 for her efforts. Because it, it needs to be said, uh, both Bullfrog and Lionhead Studios were very much a boys club. It was a lot of Chinese takeout and pizzas and all-nighters and, you know, we talk about crunch all the time, but it's also like uh, Peter loves just starting fresh and hiring whatever young, hungry weirdos he can like who just will of their own volition stay at their workstations all night because right. they're just uh, that obsessed with games and don't have, say, families or partners that like yeah. actually need them to be present for their lives. I don't think we've said the word crunch until now. That's a big part of this story, as is almost every single big deal you know, prestigious, like new IP, you you hear about the crunch is no different here. It's almost maybe worse here than I've seen it even before in a lot of ways um, from, from the descriptions. Of course, we heard about it a lot in Tomb Raider and games like that, but uh, that will not be the last time you hear the word crunch in this episode. Uh, another another note uh, for them that really worked for them well was the going Xbox exclusive part. So at, the, at first, the game was in development for various platforms, such as the Sega Dreamcast. Uh, artist uh, Damien Bazugby, he was like the main character designer. He I have a lot of quotes from him about the process. Uh, He said, when I joined in 2000, Microsoft were already on board, which was excellent as they were developing this brand new crazy looking console. What better fit than this brand new crazy looking game? It seemed perfect to me. Simon said, uh, Simon says, Simon said the Xbox design wasn't exactly restrained. If the PS2 was an elegant Japanese bento box, the Xbox was like a flame-grilled double whopper with extra cheese. <laughs> and so it just had this big, chunky look. It was essentially a PC, and this was great for the devs because that's what they were used to developing on, which is how they ended up getting into the console game. It was like a natural progression for them. And uh, apparently the hard drive in the Xbox allowed for, according to Simon, a huge number of textures, animations, sound effects, and meshes. The game was non-linear, so we didn't know which assets would be needed up front. And the hero, and to a lesser extent the NPCs, were all made up of these Lego sets of dynamic pieces that could morph. 
Everything was streamed in Fable. We were piping hundreds of megabytes of assets through a tiny 32 megabyte memory ca uh, cache, and you were playing it holding the Duke. That's right, the Duke, the biggest, dumbest controller ever made. Black button, white button. Yeah, that that I just that was my little corner on uh, going Xbox exclusive and why that actually was big for them. One of the big criticisms of the original Fable is that they nailed the charm. They nailed the uh, feel of the game. They nailed kind of the uh, aesthetic of the game and uh, the flow between quests and the flow between, you know, combat was all very well done. But the story itself where, you know, it goes from when you're a child to uh, when you're a guild adventurer to kind of uh, trying to find your surviving family, uh, fighting marauders, entering the arena, uh, and meeting the Jack of Blades, the masked super <laughs> woogie-woogie villain, kind of feels kind of slapped together at a certain point. Like, it's it, not it as is. sweeping as A Legend of Zelda. Yeah. You know, there's tons of great little side stories and characters where, you know, you can take over a brothel or marry an evil, like, duchess and do all these fun things within the world that they clearly, like, lovingly put in. But as an actual A to B story, that feels kind of rushed at the end because they didn't quite know what they were doing. They were kind of building this in fits and starts and from different angles and just trying to make the thing run before they even finished, like, a full experience. It was the making of the first game because they describe how much more streamlined Fable 2 was, this really was a spaghetti on the wall game. And I think mm -hmm. that's why what what you say is exactly true, that it feels like slapped together in these ways. Because they really were slapping all these concepts and all this stuff together in this patchwork way. Um, and, and, you know, and a lot of that was, you know, and then Molyneux is like adding to the uh, grease to the fire by promising shit that they hadn't even started developing for the game yet. So then they're like, fuck, I guess we should try to do the thing he said we were going to do in the game. Uh, so yeah, that is definitely why you get all that. Uh, a quick note on art style too. Uh, that was definitely a struggle for them. They, of course, I, I feel like they always do this in these types of stories. They initially tried to like a more realistic style. I think for some of those comedic tonally comedic elements it was a lot smarter for them to go into more of a cartoony i would describe it style like a big hands big feet yeah. uh, over the top facial hair over the top accents yeah cartoony damian bazugby he was super into manga super into um uh joe madurera and his work oh my god wait really yeah i didn't know this all i could think about was when uh playing through fable anniversary was like these look like characters from Battle Chasers. Yes, this Battle looks Chasers like specifically. Holy he loved shit. it, and uh, yeah, that was a fantasy comic book series for Wildstorm. It's those big ass leather gloves. That's like a total Joe Man. So thing. so yeah, how, what what's the deal with Battle Chasers? I know it was a comic book series for Wildstorm, and later for Image Comics, and that it's just a vibrant, colorful, almost cartoonish looking fantasy. Highly influenced uh, Bazugby's character work. Uh, it's basically uh, Joe Mad, one of the uh, coolest renegade uh, X-Men artists of the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, had his own solo project where it was this like heavily anime manga influenced dark fantasy story with these very cool kind of uh, it's, it's almost the perfect mishmash of uh, anime tropes and fantasy tropes years before that was like now almost like normalized. But, you know, very chunky characters with very, like, cartoonish proportions, uh, very dynamic, very engaging. And uh, he never actually finished the story of uh, Battle Chasers. I, 
I actually, for all of my effusing on this subject, I've never actually played Night War, which is this like mm. sp- the sequel to this comic that was released as an RPG. But oh, um, cool. I can't, I just, this whole time we were doing this, I was, I just never like was, I didn't know the influence was that direct. That's so dumb. Yeah, yeah, isn't that great? So, so moving to the next thing, I, I, you know, we we talked about the the hype of Molyneux, uh, and that that did a couple of had a couple of reverberations. First of all, there there seems to be tension that is built up between Molyneux and like the rest of the devs working on the game, especially the big blue box guys. Uh, and essentially, that is that they're starting to get upset with him for promising this shit. And then, and then you know, they don't even have plans to even put it in the game, so they either scramble to do it or they just know that they're gonna sh- it's going to show their ass because they know they don't have the stuff they promised. Also, though, Molyneux becomes essentially the, like, the credited sole creator of this game in a, in a shitty way. I mean, he's the guy giving the talks at GDC. He's the yeah. guy who's on the interviews on G4, the cool gamer channel. Even though, really, it's like the Simon Brothers that woman you mentioned, uh, what was it, Louise? Mm-hmm. Her. Like, they're like, if anything, she was a huge... <laughs> she was the one who got this game made, if anyone else. Uh, Dean said, to credit any work of this size to just one person diminishes the efforts of every single other person on the 100-plus team. The idea of focusing on a story within a simulation was Peter's. We were already working on village simulation within Wishworld for when a wizard grew urban areas, but Peter was the person who suggested we focus on a single-player story and on leveraging that simulation to make the story more personal. But, like most others on the team, there are a lot of aspects of Fable I consider mine. Albion, the world, its characters, its creatures, and its spells, and the missions, its mood, and its tone. But that also gives me far too much credit. Many ideas for characters and quests came from my conversations with other people on the team. And every idea was implemented by people given a large amount of autonomy, whose efforts made everything they touched so much better than the initial ideas. Anyone can have an idea. Genius lies in execution. I was happy to be working with quite a few of those. And, and, uh, uh, and you know, and I think that's like such a, so frustrating when it is a situation where everyone's putting their ideas into the pot. It, it's not the kind of thing that was super driven by like one person at all like it was such a collaborative effort but Zugby said what upsets me is Peter would never correct journalists and say oh that's not my game that's my satellite studio making that I don't think I ever heard him credit Big Blue Box or any part of the team that actually made the game that still leaves a bitter taste in my mouth because he's a fucking razzle dazzle man and the complicated truth is way less interesting than like I received a vision in the middle of the night right that you should be able to have game babies and your game babies should be able to tell you that you love you in real life. You'll get a phone call from your game baby saying, I love you, daddy. That's definitely in the game. It's going to happen. I thought of it in a dream. I received a vision from on high and you will be able, your wife won't yell at you anymore if you play my game. She's going to be like, when you're going to put a baby in me, you'd be like, I got a game baby and that's going to be in the game. Yeah, unless it's like a game made by a small indie game made by mainly one person with a little bit of help, there's no such thing as like an auteur in this business. There's no such thing as someone that just completely is the reason for the thing. It's always this massive collaborative effort just by the nature of of developing video games. But here's the thing that Molyneux was really great at, even back during the Amiga days, is that there is an entire 
first of all, why do we even know the guy's name? Why do I know all of these guys? Why do I know Peter Molyneux up He's and down? He's one of the only, I never played Fable before this week. He's one of the only p- names in video games that I knew. That's saying something. Because there is an ecosystem of media properties. Back in the Amiga days, there were 800,000 British-based PC gaming magazines, and Molyneux actually knew to talk to them and invite them into the studio and weave them a tale and give them something juicy to talk about. Uh, you know, when you go to E3, you know you can't, like, sit down with Shigeru Miyamoto half the time, or if you do, it's, like, kind of stilted through a translator, and they're very... You know, we've talked a million times about how Japanese game development is kind of tight-lipped because it's just not really done. You don't share those company secrets or you don't overplay your hand. But for this just gnawing, gaping, fucking hungry mouth that was games media, Molyneux was ready to shovel shit in there as much as possible, and the games media loved him for it. He became a celebrity. Yeah. And so, in a way, the games media enabled this weird cycle of his because they wanted to, you know, a new game has swords. Who gives a shit? New right. game promises to change your entire life and, like, tell you that you're a good boy. Ooh. The legends are true. With overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. So all this leads up to this crazy hype train, and it intensifies around the game so much it becomes Lionhead's number one priority for release in 2004. Big Blue Box, a team of 16, uh, becomes all of a sudden a team of like 70. And uh, they're, and then they are freaking out because they in no way signed on from the beginning to, ha- to be managing this like massive team of people. Lionhead sp- Studios people are pissed off because they were pulled from the game they were making and the game they were passionate about to finish this thing. There's a lot of tension in the office. It's kind of crazy. No, Lionhead was people jumped ship from uh, Bullfrog or like, you know, worked for pennies on the dollar to work at Lionhead because part Peter Molyneux was the guy who made games that weren't just slash em up, uh, shoot fireball games. They didn't want, you know. So the crunch gets so bad, Bazugby said, it was so bad that I it broke many people, like completely broke them. And he claimed it went on for almost a year and a half, saying there was always one more push, one more speech by someone who you barely know, asking you to sacrifice everything for their annual bonus. It was insane, and I vowed never to crunch again. It is it is so, such an atrocity in this business. I've, I've, I've never, you know, I learned so much more about it in the course of doing this show. Just know, if you're enjoying a AAA title, blood is on your hands. The blood of many men and women are on your hands, folks. I don't care if it's Assassin's Creed, if it's, you know, your God of War. They ble- they bleed. The weird part is, like, I, I was thinking about this, is like, uh, in at the very least, like, when there's a disastrous behind-the-scenes story on a movie, like, at least movies have, like, a long tail to them. You can, like, watch a movie for decades after the fact, but, like... Games have such a short shelf life before they need a remaster, before they need to get updated, or before just the hardware it was built to play on just goes obsolete. 
that it just seems like a waste of like human suffering to like work people this hard to the bone for a thing that has a shelf life of maybe eight years. Uh, you know, more if it's like a multiplayer game or an esport title. Yeah. Unfortunately, with all this cluster fuckery, Fable turns out to be Lionhead Studios' best-selling game. And releases like Black and White 2 and the movies, which were also high priorities of the studio, really did not meet uh, publisher expectations. And so the studio was in trouble. They were trying, uh, Molyneux got his head wrapped around the idea that they were going to do like an IPO stock offering that would save the company and bring in cash. Um, just from the sheer number of programmers on uh, and developers on the payroll, their wage uh Costs were astronomically high, and the company really needed to get saved. And so, even though this company was built on these lofty, like, you know, off-kilter simulation, not-your-daddy's game studios, these are new experiences promise, Microsoft swoops in, buys them up. Uh, I think Ubisoft also made an offer, and, like, it was... Who knows what that would have looked like, but... All of a sudden, the studio's main priority became Fable 2 for Microsoft Studios. Yeah, and and this is where they tr- they tried to put in other stuff that they didn't get in. Um, stuff that didn't make the cut from the first one. The, one of the big ones was a female hero. They ended up getting to do that in Fable 2, but not without a fight. They actually had to skirt around the issue by basing all of the original designs on the female hero to sneak her in. Even in the second game, it was uh, highly debated. They wanted a bit more openness to the world as well, with less linear quests. Dean said, there's so much I look back on and say, that part was just not shippable. We wasted years chasing so many wild geese and tried to do so many things that it didn't work out. Uh, that didn't work out and still haven't in any game that we ended up crushing five years worth of development into just over a year. However, there was so much love put in the game by so many people that I think fans could feel that and were kind. Fable fans are the best. So Fable 2, it does have a much less hectic development cycle and a much better planned out production schedule and already has the larger team. Neil Whitehead said, uh, he was a writer on it, I believe. On Fable, we would come up with a sort of first draft, and then the writers would uh, would amend it afterwards. For Fable 2, we had writers on board from the start, and they'd produce briefs. And then we'd have a whole eight-page document about the exact dialogue that needed implementing. It all felt a bit less spontaneous. I think that's maybe what the bigger team brewed. So the game takes place 500 years after the first one, and you can now have children like Molyneux promised back in the first game. You also got this AI dog companion, and apparently people this was... People love the dog. People, well, people should love the dog. It uh, Your blood is on... Their blood is on your hands. Uh, Molyneux promised this fucking... This is another Molyneux moment. He promises this dog AI companion. Some say it's because like his dog died... Uh, at some point during the development of like the first fable, the, the story is tragic. According to what I heard, um, two of Peter Molyneux's dogs escaped his property, went on to uh, some nearby property, and the owner of the nearby property started shooting at the dogs, killing one of them. And like from that moment, he was like beside himself and wanted like and realized the power of pets. And, you know, nowadays, you know, uh, the can you pet the dog is like a meme in video games right now. You know, every game seems to need like one dog character and you need to be able to praise him for being a good boy. And that trend really did. St- I know dog meat was in Fallout, but like 
the uh, the dog, just the kinematics, the way the dog moved, the way the dog behaved. The dog would never die. You didn't have to like. Well, I think you he could die. The dog was not supposed to be like a burden, but like if you didn't heal him by giving him treats, he would like limp meekly, like fo- like uh-huh. he wouldn't be able to follow you all the way. Like it really was this like in a very chaotic game with a lot of like weird darkness and like uh, it was uh, this was Xbox 360. So the textures were a little grimier. Uh, the colors were a little more muted. There was bloom effects over every lighting source. They got rid of an over of a mini map on this main screen. You had to follow a little trail of sparkly dust everywhere, which people are like mixed on. But the dog is like considered the holy of holies that like everyone loves the dog in Fable 2. And it was, but it, not everyone, because the programmers, it was a nightmare for them. Uh, Charles <laughs> Griffiths from the scripting team said, it became kind of cursed because some of the programmers that were responsible for it left or were reassigned. That poor dog kept getting handed around from owner to owner with everyone struggling to get it to behave. So just this massive nightmare for them. And again, it was all because Molyneux said it would be in the game. So then they had mm. this huge burden on their hands. Uh, Jake, uh, I don't have much more on Fable 2. Is it the better game? Technically, like, do people consider it the better game, or is it really that that awesome passion project that was Fable One? That just the heart in that game is just it just shines through. It's a little bit. It's a within the Fable fandom, it is a great debate. Um, I think at the time, because of the weird like missed promises, Fable One kind of was uh, deemed a uh, a had too many shortcomings and fable two was a fulfillment and a better promise delivered. Obviously the, the thrill of seeing a fable game in HD, uh, Xbox 360 graphics, uh, gave it a lot of wow factor at the time, uh, with the release of fable anniversary on the PC, more people have access to play fable one. And over the years with the improvements from the PC port, there seems to be more a lot of love for the kind of uh, purity and novelty of the original Fable in a way that is kind of like, uh, it's it's now more up to debate. At the time, Fable 2 was considered an improvement, like a great sequel through and through. Now, people go back and forth and like the nostalgia of Fable's unique sense of humor and the ludicrousness of the morality system where you're either like, uh, you know, helping sick orphans or literally sacrificing people and murdering them to a dark God for like extra weapons. Uh, kind of the, the cartoonishness of that morality system is, is almost endearing in a way. Um, all I know from a firsthand perspective, all I could play for research was fable anniversary and uh, playing it, on stream with the Sunday study group. That's if you go to patreon.com forward slash whisper. And by playing, he means just walking around and punching poor, uh, innocent NPCs in the face uh, over Not and over just again. any. I can punch the headmaster of the Heroes Guild. I can punch <laughs> children. I can punch everyone. And they all have a unique, what the fuck, why'd you punch me <laughs> animation and t- graphics. Um, it's very, it was very engaging. People really liked it. Yeah. Um, so I I think it's up to personal preference. I don't have an Xbox. I don't know if I can actually. What I'm just, from just trying to go through a million YouTube video essays. It is now a. What I'm saying is it's a bigger uh, preference choice than ah, it used to be. Like in hindsight, 
In Maybe a little bit. Yes. Well, I think most people would agree, however, that Fable 3 is not the best one. This game went into production directly after the second. It's like as if they learned no lessons from the first game that they seem to have learned in the second game development cycle. They had a rough two-year schedule. And everyone was burnt out from making Fable 2, so they were already burnt out going into this insane crunch development cycle. Like, two years was, like, way too tight. I believe this was, oh no, I don't have the person who said this. Someone who worked on the game said, I poured my soul into Fable 2 in the DLC packs. And when it was over, like much of the team, I was completely burned out. I think this is Bazugby, the art guy. When work began on Fable 3 and it became clear the tools were not going to get fixed, I had to get out. While continuing to make new levels, I fought against management who refused to let me switch projects. Eventually, I spoke with Peter and with his help managed to escape with my sanity, only to return to Fable 3 one project later. And so, uh, and and this this shitty production schedule go, goes completely against all of what made the first game great. There's no experimentation. There's no playing with the formula. They just have to get this thing done. They did add this road to rule progression. That was a last minute addition, but but even that was like tacked on. So one of the things with Fable Three, um, the there is a lot of novelty things I talked about earlier. How the idea that you actually have to take over. For the evil king and all of a sudden you're in compromised positions and have to make quote unquote evil choices just like the evil king did because of this greater threat was like kind of novel at the time. Uh, But among the things that uh, Molyneux supposedly foisted on the game that nobody likes is something snapped. I don't know what game Molyneux played, maybe one of the Elder Scrolls, maybe a, a Bioware game or something. But out of nowhere, Molyneux just like hated 2D menus. He was just like, fuck 2D menus. I no more. Um, I'm, you know, I'm making games for real people, man. And what that meant was uh, instead of a progression tree where you get to like select what skills and bonuses and buffs you want, uh, you just have to walk this like poorly rendered 3D road with gates behind it and unlock things by walking up to treasure chests and picking them up. Like, just way more of a hassle. Instead of like picking uh, your armor or your weapon set, you have to go to your sanctuary and walk into the armor room and walk up to the armor you want and put it on. Like in his pursuit of uh, streamlining and simplicity, he made so many things that were once just easy clicks on your menu into just a rigmarole. And people still point to that as just a truly bizarre, just anti-usability choice. That being said, the cast on Fable 3 is a little bit insane. Like, it's pretty much a who's who of cool European actors. There's John Cleese as the uh, butler, which, uh, you know, he then got in trouble on social media. Uh, Stephen Fry (laughs) as Reaver, also got in trouble on social media. Uh, Reaver, in Fable 2 and 3, Stephen Fry as Reaver is a really cool character. Take away social media from these old British people. Just take away... Honest to God, Logan's run all social media. Like, <laughs> as soon as you turn 48, yes. sorry, you just got to hang out at, you just got to go to your knitting circle. Sorry, all right? it's don't... taken from you. It's time. And you should take another driving test. Michael Fassbender plays the evil king, Logan. Uh, Simon Pegg plays the roguish soldier, Ben Finn. Uh, ben Kingsley plays the clearly coded Welsh tribesman, Sabine. Um, or Gypsy, I forget what how they. Uh, I never, I never actually played that one. Don't don't yell at me. Um, 
it's a very it's a very cool cast. Nicholas Holt plays your helpless friend who kicks off the action of the game. And Danny Elfman, uh, you know, contributed music to the entire series. The main fable theme. Oh yeah, we is forgot now- to say the the opening theme in the in the first game is done by Elfman uh, of Simpsons and uh, all the Tim Burton movies. Actually, Mary, if you can play a little bit of that uh, Danny Elfman fable theme, just just get that in there so people get the nostalgia rush. But even the the uh, voice acting stuff and scripting stuff, I have like a dark quote from that. Editor at Microsoft, Andrea Roberts, said, We did over 100 revisions on the script for the intro scene alone. There was so much voiceover to record that we had three sessions running simultaneously every day for six weeks. And we were working late in the night, every night, to have everything ready to record the next day. It was the most intense crunch I've ever done. Dean said... I left partway through Fable 3. It was the product of a ridiculous schedule driven by rather odious external forces who shall remain nameless. They didn't believe single-player RPGs could ever sell in 2009 and that a Fable game should take a maximum of two years. Their view was that if the game wasn't closer to Uncharted in appeal, sales, and schedule, then Lionhead's future uh, was going to be bleak. To my mind, this was both a middle finger to the fans and a ridiculous use of a team who by then knew how to make a Fable games uh and so yeah people were pissed at the end of this one and it really i mean and then we see you know a sequel was in the works but it failed because lionhead i believe closes eventually fable the journey was put out which Uh, is this gimmicky ass connect game in 2012 fable the journey (laughs) is a um on rails fable game where you have to do shit like steer a uh, horse-drawn wagon using your hands on the reins um, or you use like your hands to aim spells in like kind of a shooting gallery. One of the first things Peter Molyneux said, he looked dead in the camera and was like, this is not an on-rail shooter. And this game is the most on-rail shooter that has ever existed. Oh God. I The timeline of this gets a little bit weird. I think, no, he's still at Lionhead when he gets def- so... Uh, roped into Project Dimitri, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the thing with the Kinect is supposedly, uh, and we'll eventually get into this on an Xbox episode, was the Kinect was supposed to have a built-in processor that crunched the numbers on the sensor data that came in from the infrared camera and the 3D tracking. Yeah. So that uh, the basically it freed up these uh, developers to like, create more immersive experiences and more kind of uh, just better, quicker interactions, more accurate actions. Just like the Kinect was supposed to take care of so much stuff that for cost purposes, Microsoft at the last second basically was like, no, it's just the sensors. Like the Xbox itself has to process the data from it. And just that amount of uh, resource suck up just doomed so many Connect games that were in development uh-huh. because they're just you couldn't have that like the accuracy, the latency, all these things that a more intense and interactive game required just would get kneecapped because the you know everything else because Microsoft kneecapped the Connect as a peripheral, the games had to be less complex and more forgiving because the sensor data had to be processed in real time on the Xbox instead of offloading it onto the Kinect. And so 
all these things that like Molyneux could conceivably do with a connect, which I'm sure he had a million different ideas like uh, Milo, the magic boy that he showcased at E3 and a connect based fable game all just like fell apart and became a buggy, laggy, uninteresting mess. I mean, it's the connect, you know, what are you going to do about it? Uh, and we, I feel like we'll do it a full episode of the connect at some point to talk about the spectacular failure that was that. Uh, but either way, uh, fable legends was to be a four versus one multiplayer game, but that was actually canceled when Lionhead fully closed the doors on its studios in 2016. So Microsoft, yeah, threw them this last rope, which was, uh, this is around the time that, uh, games like Evolve were getting popular. This was where uh, stuff like Overwatch, like um, Games as Service was the name of the day. And so Microsoft really wanted a, you know, forever game that would be interrated on and like maybe free to play, but you get loot boxes and cosmetics. And because it's Lionhead, they had to make it in the Fable universe. And they ended up burning through $75 million by the time the studio was shut down because... It was supposed to be this, like, four-player co-op, top-down action game, kind of like a Diablo perspective where uh, you're solving environmental puzzles and, you know, fighting off waves of enemies. And a fifth player was going to be in charge of, like, arranging the obstacles and sending the enemy waves at you. So it was this co-op competitive hybrid, which... I don't think any game has successfully actually executed. Yeah, it's always also funny to see when it's like, it's this game that was different from all the other games at the time. It was like trying to do things different than what was the what was in at the time. And then watch it slowly turn into a franchise that's just trying to do exactly what seems to be hip and cool and in at the time to capitalize on some fat. It's just like... Can't you see that, like, this is not what made this popular, that it was this whole other scenario? So that kind of leads me to my final bit, which is just that in 2018, Eurogamer reported a new game was in development by a British developer called Playground Games. And uh, whether that game will be good or not is, uh, who knows, or if it'll even come out is uh, left to be seen. I mean, and but I definitely saw quotes from the, the, the original devs essentially just saying, like, maybe it'll be good, but it won't be. The, what what we made like it, it'll be something else with the fable name on it and i agree to wrap up the story of molyneux um after burning so many bridges and after breaking so many promises and after like just becoming the guy who lies um he once again found himself uh just he, he then got, he was like part of uh, Microsoft Game Studios as like a, he was a creative director for the European offices. He was like getting flack from all these directions. And so he was like, I'm out. In 2012, he um, said he was going to leave after the completion of Fable the Journey. And he started a new studio called 22 Cans. And the first thing they did was release curiosity what's in the cube holden do you remember the cube were you down with the cube no (laughs) it was a giant cube with 69 million billion billion smaller cubes consisting of it and it was a collective game where just people all over the world clicked or tapped or swiped to just get to the center of it because in the center was a mysterious prize mm. that Peter Molyneux said would change the winner's life. Oh, I kind of remember this now. This is fun. After months of people just blindly tapping away at this thing, 
the game would constantly get uh, the servers for it would get shut down and people's progress would get reset. But like he successfully got people to just tap at cubes for months on end. A single winner was discovered. And that boy was told that he would become a god. In the new 22 games, 22 cans god game, Goddess, which was just a mobile version of Populous with some, like, uh, simple polygonal graphics style. That's so funny. Also, the game needed to be kickstarted, so we did a kickstarter. Oh, wow. Made it the... Unbelievable. Kickstarter made $700,000, and the game was never finished. The game was never finished. The winner of the Curiosity uh, Cube contest said that they stopped contacting him. Like, it just became a giant clusterfuck. The game was released in early access, and people were a little bit excited, but also kind of just like, what, this is it? Um, You can still download it for Android and iOS, and I played it, and I don't think it's fun. I think it's kind of boring. I think it's not really good. Just the whole thing was a giant clusterfuck, and Molyneux said, that's it. I'm not going to hype anymore. I'm not (laughs) going to talk to the press. (laughs) <laughs> there were all these like really combative interviews before that happened where people were just like, hey, Peter, what's up? Uh, how you doing? Are you a compulsive liar or not? <laughs> a pathological, like one guy just straight up was like, hey, uh, first question, are you a pathological liar? He found the he found the line, it sounds like. He found the line. He, he, got, he, found, he reached the edge of the earth, it seems. Weirdly enough, in 2016, without any fanfare, without any hype, 22 Cans released The Trail Frontier Challenge, which is available for iOS, uh, Android, Windows, Nintendo Switch. And it's actually a really, like, pleasant game. It's kind of this, uh, instead of, like, an endless runner, it's pretty much an endless walker where you're walking these kind of beautifully designed nature trails in a colonial kind of frontier America. And you're crafting on the fly, managing stamina, meeting new people. And it's like kind of a really pleasant mobile game. And it honestly probably should have gotten more hype than it did, than it should have, because Molyneux backed off and didn't make a bunch of weird promises. That's funny. Well, I have some quotes to wrap it all up. I love that we've got to that ending with Molyneux, though. That is perfect. Uh, Here's one from Dean Carter of the Carter Brothers, who kind of got the whole ball rolling. I live for mood and tone. My goal was to create a world that felt unlike anything anyone had lived in before, at least in video games. I wanted players to look at a screenshot, hear a snippet of music, or catch a fragment of dialogue and say, oh, that's Albion, that's Fable. Every so often I hear from people who loved the same things I loved about the series. It brings a big, wide smile to my face every time. Bazugby, that uh, that uh, character designer, said, I think one of my favorite parts of working on Fable was that it aimed for the stars, a mad goal, especially when you only have a slingshot. My personal aim was to make a game I've never played before. I guess I didn't succeed in that as I was too burnt out to play the thing after five years of developing it. Uh, Simon Carter said, Fable was smaller and less ambitious than we planned. At the same time, we combined a fun action combat system, very complicated AI and simulation systems, a unique visual style, European folktales, British humor, a hero that morphed according to the way you played, and hundreds of other innovations into this weird, wobbly, wonderful thing that somehow held together. I love that description. And my final quote from Dean Carter, um, once again... 
Fable taught me I was a creative. Creating Albion was a lesson in active dreaming and making, in taking mood, tone, and atmosphere and crafting it into something the audience can tell is filled with love. Fable is more than its me- mechanics and systems. It is Albion, filled with quirks, mysteries, and a curious, bucolic, silly charm. When reviews mentioned these aspects, it made me feel the struggle had been worthwhile. Making Fable transformed me. I love that. And that's it. I think that's all she wrote, Jake. Good stuff. I'm going to leave this closet now. I, I, I Release me from this closet, Jake. Uh, yeah. Uh, I can understand why people love this game series. The I think in the modern day, if I wanted an involved third-person uh, medieval action experience, I'd probably pick up a Dark Souls game. Sure. Uh, if I wanted an expansive uh, medieval world with like kind of a wry sense of humor... And interesting characters. I'd probably play a Witcher game. Sure. Like, if I wanted to just openly explore a countryside, I'd probably play an Elder Scrolls game. Like, but Fable, in all of its flaws, does have a very, like, unique charm all of its own. I really hope that sequel does come out. Yeah. I really hope in new hands with a clearer, more refined idea of what it wants to be, uh, it'll be a good experience. And, yeah, uh, yeah man, 2000s games were weird. 100%. Uh, so there you go. That is our episode on Fable. And uh, we hope we did it justice for all you people who were disappointed when we released an episode on the comic book Fable uh, series, <laughs> Fables. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back next week, I'm sure. If you want to check us out, uh, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. If you want to support us further, $5 a week. Uh, we do bonus episodes. We do so much stuff. It's ridiculous. Um, it's not really that ridiculous. But we do these Sunday study sessions at the $15 layer. There's a lot of fun to be had in there. So check out the Patreon uh, also, uh, check me out, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. That's twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. And uh, yeah, man, I got, I got, I'm partner now. I got a bunch of new emotes. It's pretty cool. Jake? All you got to do is follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung and see all of my thoughts and plops and keep up to date with all the latest jakerings. And hey, always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.